Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. That's true, and I believe it, and I think you believe it. And because of that, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. We've been working our way through this glorious New Testament letter, Hebrews. And if you're visiting with us for the first time today, uh, I will catch you up, even though we've just been working kind of verse by verse through this. There may be a moment when you think, oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? This is deep and complex. It's not really. I will do my best to explain it to you and catch you up and to give you a sense of what is happening in Hebrews chapter 8. And so I'm going to pray and I'm going to read the text and we're going to get into it. As you're finding Hebrews 8, before I read the text and pray, I want to put this thought in your mind of what we're going to do today. The Bible is one grand story. It's one grand message. I think a lot of people that are maybe not very familiar with the Bible think it's bits and pieces, kind of like... Uh, proverbial statements, and certainly it's full of that, but it's one grand connected narrative. And today, we're going to look at this idea, which is introduced here in Hebrews chapter 8, this biblical concept of covenant. And I would say that the idea of covenant serves as, think of it this way, if we were taking an x-ray of the Bible, that this idea of covenant serves as the spine of all of Scripture that holds it together. Of course, we know that Christ holds all the Bible together, but in a, in a sort of theological sense, this concept that the writer is going to get into today, and I, I don't think this is hyperbolic to say, if you understand the basic thing that the writer is saying in Hebrews chapter 8, how the Bible connects and what the underlying spine of the Bible is, then, then you really are well on your way to having a firm grasp on the message of the Bible. So with that, let me read our text, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. I'll pray, and then we're going to dig into it. The writer of Hebrews says to Jewish Christians in Rome in the first century who were tempted to give up on Jesus and go back to the Old Covenant because of persecution. They were tempted to go back to Judaism rather than holding on to Christ because of the persecution of the Roman Empire. And the whole point of Hebrews is, don't give up on Jesus. Draw near to him. Hold fast to him. And he's made several comparisons, and here we're in the middle of this argument where he's saying that Jesus is the new covenant, and it's better, so don't go back to the old. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and he's quoting here Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It's referring to the Exodus. 
for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Well, let me pray. And as I'm praying, pray for me that I would explain this text well, because this is, this is important. Lord, help us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that we can gather and we can open up our Bibles and we can sit in a comfortable room and we can sing songs freely. We know that we have brothers and sisters around the world who cannot do this. And so we come humbly to your word and we ask for your spirit to do the work that you intend to do with your word in our hearts. For believers, make us more like Jesus. Make us love him more. And for, as Andy so clearly prayed at the beginning, for any unbelievers in here, Lord, would you open their eyes to the beauty of the gospel. And most of all, would you be glorified? Would we be humbled? And would we be transformed for your glory and our good? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. I'm going to zoom out here, and I am going to, uh, in a sense, sort of show you the x-ray of what I think the, the storyline of the Bible is through this framework of the covenant. And so I, ha I have just a couple headings. First, we're going to look at God's unfolding covenant of redemption, and then we're going to look at the new covenant. So in a sense, I'm zooming out. I'm not going to deal so much with Hebrews chapter 8 in the first part of this message, and then in the second part, we're going to dip back down into it. So first, let's zoom out, and let's kind of put the x-ray up on the little board that lights it up. And I want you to understand this whole concept, which I think holds the Bible together, this idea of a covenant. It's a, it's a relationship. Now, sometimes we have that a little phrase in American Christianity that, that uh, Christianity is not about a religion, it's about a relationship. And in, in one sense, I don't like that phrase because I think, and if you say it, I'm sorry, but I don't think you should say it anymore. I don't think it's real helpful because I think it kind of minimizes. Somebody said, oh my gosh, well, okay. Just, just, just bear with me for a second. I think the sentiment is true, but there's, there's more richness to it that that I think that when we flippantly say things like that, we sort of minimize the, the glory of God and the obligations that we have as his people to live for him. And so, yes, it's not about religion or regulations, and, but, and it is about a relationship, but, but that's, there's a way of kind of saying that that almost sort of makes it too light, too vanilla. There's a richness to that. And so this idea of relationship gets to this idea of covenant that God... Not because he needed to, but as an overflow of his glory has created everything that is. The whole universe that our former member Frank Rubio was up in the skies. I still can't get over this. He was in a satellite. He was in a spaceship in the heavens <laughs> calling us and saying hello and thank you, Crosspoint, for praying. It's the, and that's just a tiny little blip on the screen of all that is of the creation and then he created the world and everything in it and as a pinnacle of his creation he created us 
And he created us to, to dwell with him and to be in relationship with him. Again, not because God needed us, but for his joy and as a display of his glory. And so this idea of covenant, this idea of relationship, this, this, this relationship between two parties. In this instance, God and his people. One uh, theologian uh, has, has defined this idea of covenant very succinctly, and I think it's helpful. And, and he's sort of drilling down into covenants in a more narrow sense in the Bible. And he says, his name is O. Palmer O. It's like when you're smart, you just kind of make your first name a period, and then you go by your middle name. O. Palmer, Palmer Robertson. And he says, I like this covenant definition. He says that a covenant in the Bible is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. And so what's he getting at there? It's a bond. It's a, it's a relationship. It's not a contract. It's a relationship. It goes beyond just you do this and we have this kind of agreement and then we go on our merry way. It's talking about a oneness. It's a permanence to the relationship. And it's a bond in, in blood. In other words, life and death are at stake here. If somebody breaks this covenant because it's a covenant not between equals but between a greater and a lesser, God and his creation, and so the stakes are high. This covenant has to be met. And if it's not met, life and death are at stake and blood must be shed. Punishment is at stake for the breaking of the covenant. And it is sovereignly administered. It's not like two parties found each other. But it's God in his graciousness is condescending and making himself known to his creation. So covenant, the whole idea is an idea of grace. So I want us to think about, first, the covenants in the, in, the, in the Bible. First, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about this idea that the first covenant, which really we don't see explicitly stated in the Bible, but sort of stands in the background of the whole Bible, is this idea of the covenant that God makes with himself. It's this covenant of redemption. So, so think about it this way. Behind everything that we're going to, when the Bible is using this word covenant, that God makes a covenant with all these Old Testament figures and the new covenant, the old and the new, behind it all, God, in a sense, has made a covenant with himself within the Trinity to create a world that he would allow to fall that the son would go to save. Let me just show you, I think, the, a kind of echo of this covenant of redemption that God has made within the Trinity. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Listen to this, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has loved, blessed us in the beloved. So why do I bring that verse out? How does this speak to this covenant that God has made with himself? Well, notice that God is, is saying that he has a plan, God the Father, to save people through God the Son before the foundations of the earth, before creation, before he even created anything, God has already devised, he's already determined, he's already, in a sense, covenanted with himself to do 
to do this thing that he says he's going to do, which is create a world that he will allow to fall, and he will save a great number. So God the Father has covenanted with God the Son and God the Spirit to send the Son to accomplish this covenant and send the Spirit to apply this covenant to, his pe- to a people even before creation is created. So I want you to see that behind all of, all of human history, all of everything, is this pact, is this agreement, is this plan that God has made with himself. And then we see through the Old Testament, we see again God then engaging his creation. And what I want to unfold for you now, briefly, hopefully, don't, don't give me the side eye, briefly, is, is how this covenant of redemption unfolds in time through the Bible. So the first covenant that we see is God making a covenant with Adam in the garden, with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And he says to Adam, he says, you are going to be my image bearer. And I I have a plan for you, Adam, and it's for you to take dominion over the earth, and you're special. You're not an animal, okay? You're not an animal. We're special. We, we, We are made in God's image, right? And so praise God for people that save manatees and want to preserve forests. But there's something special about God's image bearers, whether or not they're Christians or not. And so don't, don't put anything on the same plane as people in God's creation. And he says to Adam, I'm going to make you my image bearer, and, I'm going to, and you must obey me. If you do this, you will live, and if you do this, you will die. And Adam breaks the covenant. Right, Adam breaks the covenant, and he dies in a sense. Spiritual death comes in, and then all of creation falls. But God, God has remember behind this covenant in time in Adam in the garden is this covenant of redemption that God has made with Himself. So we move on to the covenant that God then makes with Noah. A few chapters in, we're in Genesis chapter six, seven, and eight right now, and He says to Noah, "It's in a sense a kind of, it's a kind of picture. It's a recreation." He says, "Okay." Uh, I, Adam didn't obey me. He didn't, he didn't uphold his end of the covenant. And so he starts afresh with Noah, but he starts afresh with the judgment of the world. And he blesses Noah, and he calls Noah to build an ark, which becomes a kind of picture of salvation. Noah builds this boat. In fact, it's not a picture of salvation. It is salvation for Noah and his family. And God judges the earth. So what is going on with the covenant with Noah? Well, it's a picture of salvation. It's a picture of judgment. And it's a picture, despite the wickedness of humanity, of God's preserving faithfulness to his creation to bring about his covenant plan to save a people for himself. And so he, he has this covenant with, with Noah. And Noah is saved from the flood. But Noah, right after he gets off the boat, things start to go downhill again. And then that leads us into Genesis chapter 12, where we see now kind of the third covenant in the Old Testament, where God makes a covenant with Abraham. And this is so significant, the the implications. And I want you to think of these as just part of this one unfolding covenant that God has made with people. And he makes a covenant with Abraham. And he shows up to this man who at this time in the Bible is called Abram. And he says to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, he says, you're going to be my man. And I want you to go to the land that I'm showing you. And he promises Abram three things. He promises him land, and he promises him offspring, and he promises him blessing. And that's really all we know 
is that he's promising him blessing. And this is connected, this is connected, for Abraham's connected in a sense to Adam because even after Adam and Eve broke the covenant with God, God said to Adam and Eve, I'm going to give you a son, and that son, that seed, that son is going to crush the serpent that deceived you. He's going to ultimately crush. And that's all we know is that there's a son coming that's going to crush the head of the serpent. And then in Abraham, he says to Abraham, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you offspring. I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to give you blessing. And that's all we know, and Abraham, Abraham sets out. And then Abraham, the covenant is renewed with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And here's what's significant about Genesis 15 is God is further clarifying the nature of his covenant to his people. And he says to Abraham, he says, he says I'm going to save a people through faith. And Abraham believed God. And it says that Abraham's faith, not anything that Abraham did, not his righteousness, but Abraham's faith and trust in God was counted to him, or, or a good southern word, it was reckon to him as righteousness. And so Abraham, in this covenant with Abraham, God is putting something on display that he will not save a people through their righteousness, through their own merit, but through faith. And that's all we know at this point, is that he's saving Abraham, not through his goodness, but in his faith in God. In fact, to display, to put on display the the, the uh, inability of Abraham to even do anything in regards to this covenant. You know how God ratifies this covenant with Abraham? He puts Abraham to sleep, makes him go night-night for a midday nap, and then, as a sign of the covenant, he cuts these animals. God cuts these animals in half, like a bull and a goat and and, and, and a, a few others, and he lays the carcasses of these animals side by side, which was a sign. This is how, this is, where'd this come from? Well, this is a sign how kings in the olden, Old Testament would enter into a sort of agreement with one another. They would say, okay, we're going to agree to this sort of peace treaty, and here's what we'll do. We'll cut this animal in half. We'll lay a carcass on one side, half of the carcass over here, and half the carcass over here, and then these two kings would walk arm in arm through the middle of these two halves of this animal slain in two. And what it was symbolic of is these kings in this sort of peace treaty that they were saying with one another, they were saying that we're, we're in a bond right now in blood, right? And if I break the covenant with you, if I go against the covenant stipulations, may it be to me as has happened to this animal. May my blood, may I be cut in half, may I die. And if you break the peace treaty that we're enacting right now, may it happen to you. May you be cut in half and die, in a sense. So it's symbolic, right? But here's what's different in this scene with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Abraham, God puts Abraham to sleep, puts him on a little cot over to the side. Now I'm just making that up. He just, he's, he's night-night over here. And God then cuts these animals in half, and with the imagery of a smoking pot and a flaming torch, miraculously, goes through, so it's God, it's a, that's a symbol of God's presence. God walks through, God in a sense moves through, through the symbol of the smoking pot and this flaming torch, while Abraham is asleep, God goes through these two animals. And what is God saying? He's saying, he's saying that this covenant doesn't depend ultimately on what you can do, Abraham, 
you don't really bring anything in a sense to this, but it all depends on me. And God is in a sense swearing by himself. And he's saying, if I don't bring about what I have promised, then God is in a sense saying, I will, I will cease to, I will, I will take myself out, which is an impossibility. And so here, here we see this covenant of God reaffirming with Abraham. But then it goes even further with Abraham. Abraham is important, if you haven't noticed. In Genesis chapter 17, we see this, this recommitment or a restating or an even further clarification of this covenant that God makes with Abraham because Abraham has just done this plan with his mistress, Hagar. He was childless. God said, I will give you all the way back in Genesis 12. God said to Abram and his wife, Sarah, I'll give you offspring from your own loins. In other words, between you and your wife. Decades go by, it's not being fulfilled. They are starting to, in a sense, doubt God's plan. Abram takes this mistress, and he has a child with her. And then in Genesis chapter 17, after Abraham and Sarah have concocted their own plan, not trusting in God, God comes back to Abraham, and this is what he does. And this is a bit graphic. But in Genesis chapter 17, you know what the covenant that God cuts with Abraham here? It's a covenant of circumcision. The cutting away of the male foreskin. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about this, the, 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 uh, the importance of circumcision. But let me just surmise, if you might think, well, why did God do that? That seems kind of strange. You know, I think at least, at least in part what's going on there is that God is displaying to Abraham that that he's going to bring a son through Abraham and Sarah, and that happens in Genesis 18. That becomes Isaac. And he says, that's the child of the promise, but, but why would he cut away the foreskin of this most sensitive part, of the reproductive organ of this man? He's basically saying to Abraham, the covenant will be fulfilled not through your strength, not through your manliness, in a sense, not through your virility, and to show you how inept and unable you are to actually bring about this on your own, I'm going to cut away the flesh of the very part of your body that is going to be necessary in bringing this into fruition. Do you see that? In a sense, it's God saying, this will come by me. I'm in control of this, all of this. And then through that through that covenant comes this son, Isaac, the son of the promise. Well, God's people grow into Israel as a nation all the way through Genesis. We find ourselves in Egypt in captivity. They're rescued by Moses and freed, and they're now they're wandering in the promised land, or they're wandering on their way to the promised land, and God then enacts another covenant, a further, it's really part of the same covenant, but it's a progression and it's the covenant with Israel, or the covenant at Sinai. It's often called the Mosaic Covenant. And God tells Moses to meet me on the mountain. And he, in this meeting with Moses, gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And he gives him all of the law. And he gives him this sacrificial system. He gives him all of the instructions on how the priest, this is the institution of the priesthood. And he tells them this is what the priests are to do. And these are the sacrifices that they're to make. And so think about the progression here. Adam, be my image bearer, failed. 
And just to kind of show us that God's committed to his promise, he gives us this picture of Noah, that God's going to judge the world, but he's going to save the world by, through one man. And then he tells Abraham, I'm going I'm to make a nation, and I'm going to give you a people, and I'm going to give you land and offspring and blessing. And, 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 and then he brings this man Moses onto the scene to rescue his people from captivity, which is a picture of salvation. And because God is interested in how we live, and because God wants his people to be holy, because he wants to show the world his grace through his people, he says to Moses, and he gives them all of this law that tells them how they are to live. In in essence, he says, do this and you will live. But God's people fail, which says that we need more. We need something better. And then the New Testament ends, at least chronologically, in a sense, with David and his kingship. And this is the final covenant in the Old Covenant, the sort of of sub-covenant within the Old Covenant. And he says to David, who is the king of Israel, he says, David, I'm going to give you, David's old, he's about to die, and he's saying, God, I wish I could build you a house. You know, God dwells in tents in the tabernacle in the desert, and here I am in my palace. You know, God, I wish I could build you a house. And God speaks through the prophet Nathan, Nathan, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he has Nathan tell God, oh, easy killer, whoa, wait a minute now. You don't build me a house. I'm going to build you a house, and I'm going to make your throne a throne that is established forever. And on that throne will sit a king who will rule the nation's forever and that's called the davidic covenant so here's the old covenant there it is right there if you understand that progression adam be my image bearer he fails noah a picture of god's he's not given up even though things things seem bleak it gets clarified in abraham i'm going to make a people i'm going to do something for these people i'm going to give them land and and offspring and and blessing but they need they need more instruction they need to know how to live and I'm going to give them Moses, the Mosaic Covenant, and the law, and I'm going to teach them how to live, and I'm going to teach them my holiness. But ultimately, they're going to fail, and that's going to point further on to to somebody that will come and finally fulfill these stipulations of the covenant for them. And and they don't just need that, but they need a king to reign over them. And and that's, that's what David is, which then leads us to the new covenant, which is what our writer is talking about here, and he's saying, it's Christ. Christ is the one who comes. All these, everything in the old, everything from Adam to David had its purpose. It was like a shadow pointing to Christ who is the reality. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing here, now back to Hebrews, what the writer of Hebrews is doing here is he's showing these Jewish Christians, don't go back to Moses. Don't go back to trusting in your heritage. Stay with Christ. And then what he does is he pulls one of the prophets out of the Old Testament, who's Jeremiah, who in the middle of the Old Covenant is pointing Israel forward to the new. In fact, what's happening in Jeremiah chapter 31, which is where this quote from Hebrews chapter 8 is coming from, is God's people were in exile. They were in captivity. It was as bleak of a time as possible in Israel's history. And in the middle of that darkness, what, what what the prophet Jeremiah is saying, he's not saying, look down deep within yourself and try harder. He's saying that 
There's coming a day when God will send his son, a king, a priest, a new covenant. He's coming, and this new covenant is going to be different from the old. God's going to do it. He's going to write it on your hearts, and he's going to put it in your minds, and he's going to do it for you, and he's going to forgive your iniquities and remember them no more. Which then gets us to the new and better covenant. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Look again at Hebrews chapter 8. Remember the overall argument. He's saying that there was this old covenant that we saw unfold through the Old Testament. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. And each of them had their place in redemptive history to show us something, to show us more of, more of what we needed, to show us God's plan. And all of it is pointing to Jesus. And what is the, even this prophet in the middle of the darkest days of the failure of this old covenant people, he's pointing them and saying there's coming a day. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, meaning when Christ comes, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and Write them on their hearts. In other words, it's not going to be a tablet anymore. It's going to be the Spirit's work in your heart. This covenant is not going to be genealogical, but spiritual. It's not going to be something of the flesh, but it's going to be something done by the Spirit. And God is the one who will do it. Now, how will he do it? How will he do it? Well, I think the Bible tells us clearly. I'm not going to take the time to read it, but... Another prophet in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 36, Ezekiel, and again in these dark days, Ezekiel says that there's coming a day. And Ezekiel 36 is much like Jeremiah 31. They kind of go together. In Ezekiel chapter 36, the prophet saying in unison, essentially with what Jeremiah is saying about the new covenant, he's saying, God's speaking through Ezekiel, and he's saying that there's coming a day when I will take out your heart of stone and I will put in your heart a heart of in you a heart of flesh which will enable you to follow me so the this old covenant which was in a sense exterior and could never bring about the obedience that it required the new and better covenant is coming and it's the new covenant where god is going to actually do something inside of his people to enable them to live as covenant people and to be who he has called Adam and Noah and David and Moses and Abraham to be, but who God's people could never ultimately be in the old covenant because it was a covenant on the outside. Now the new covenant is better because it's done from the inside out by the work of the Spirit. And where do we see that explained? Well, I think we see it explained in Ephesians chapter 2. This should be a familiar text to you, and I think what's happening in Ephesians chapter 2 is Paul is explaining how God brings this promise to bear, this promise of a new heart, the work of the Spirit, the new covenant, betterness, how God brings this to bear on our hearts as individuals. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 says this. I mean, if you've been around Crosspoint for any time, you're, you're, you're hopefully very familiar with this passage. It is it's one of the most important, I think, in all of the Bible in, as far as explaining the gospel. Verses 1 through 3 basically say we're dead in our sins. 
We, we can't obey God in our natural way. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, in other words, not by our righteousness, not by anything we've done, even, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So, so I want you to think about what's going on there in this covenantal framework. Our hearts are dead in an old covenant sort of sense. The law has accused us and we can't obey God. And so how does Ezekiel 36 happen? How will he take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh? By what Ephesians 2 is saying, by the new birth, by regeneration. This is what salvation is. The new covenant. Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, that's stated in our main text, Hebrews 8, is the gospel. It's the story of Regeneration, it's how an individual dead sinner goes from death to life because of the grace of God, not because of their work. So in a sense, Abraham being asleep on the side of the road in Genesis 15 while God does it all and brings about the, this covenant is, is pictured for us here in Ephesians chapter 2, we are dead in our sins. We're unable to contribute to this. But God brings about this new covenant, and we've broken this covenant. And who's the one that suffers the penalty of breaking this covenant? God himself, Jesus, on the cross. So the carcass that is slain is not us but Jesus. And the consequence of Jesus satisfying the holiness of God is that God takes out our old heart. He gives us a new one, which is what Ezekiel 36 is saying. And now he writes it on our heart. He enables us to get up and follow him. And although we cannot do it perfectly, but we must do it at least in part, we then, this is the mark of a Christian, is not praying a prayer, but a new heart and faith and obedience that issues from that new heart, the, the fruit of obedience that comes from the root of a new heart that God plants in the life of a Christian. That's the new covenant. So I want you to look at that old again. I want you to see Adam, Noah, Abraham, Mosaic, David. I want you to see how the new is better than the old. Well, Jesus is the new and better Adam. He, he's the image that we've been remade in. We were made in the image of Adam in our sin. And now we've been, if we're a Christian, we're remade in the image of Jesus. He's the new and better Adam, right? Everybody in this room, you can talk about where you're from. You can talk about um, your ethnicity. You can talk about... Um, your, your football allegiances, Georgia, Auburn, Alabama, whatever. Uh, you can kid me about LSU beating Army like 68 to nothing yesterday. 
And if you're an LSU fan, you're in here, you need, to, you need to spend some time with the Lord and ask for forgiveness, which you did to my Army team. I don't, I don't know where you are, Les Talley. You're in here somewhere, but you need, to, you, need to, you need to do business with God and get grace. We have all these different ways of identifying ourselves, but you're either, you're either still in Adam under the old covenant, which you cannot fulfill, which you will be judged for, or you're in Christ by faith. And that's not something you did, something God does. But then once he does it, then you're enabled. It's not just easy street, now you're enabled. So, so Jesus is the new and better Adam. Jesus is the new and better Noah. He, he's the ark. He's the ark. And what God was doing physically in the flood, <laughs> that's a story, isn't it? I mean, we just kind of breeze over there. Everybody drowned. Oh, well, you know, flannel graph of, of old Noah with a smile on his face. And two by two, the giraffes and the elephants. And I don't think in any of the flannel graphs there's any like people floating dead on the surface of the water. I mean, this is a picture of the, the judgment of God. And the judgment of God will be far worse than the physical flood in Genesis 6. On that day when Jesus comes again and you are either in Adam or Christ. And so Jesus is the new and better Noah who doesn't just save you temporarily from a flood, but who saves you from the ultimate flood of God's wrath. And Jesus is the new and better Abraham. He, he's the fountain of all God's people. He's... He's, listen to this, this is so important. We talked about this a little bit Wednesday night. He's the land that is promised. He's the, he's the fulfillment of the land promise. He's the Canaan land. He's the promised land. He's the new and better rest. He's the Sabbath for the people of God. He's the one offspring that was promised to Abraham who inherits all the promises. He's the one who has all of the yes and amen from God in him. And he is the one in whom all of God's people are blessed. That's why Ephesians 1 says that every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ Jesus. So Jesus is the new and better Abraham, and he is the realization of all the promise to Abraham. He's the promised land. He is the offspring. He is the blessing. And he's the new and better Moses. Moses could write God's law on a tablet of stone and say, do this and live. But we could never ultimately do it. But now Jesus, through his work of regeneration, has, has given us his law written on our hearts. And so this is where we've got to be thinking now. This is so important because the glory and the goodness of salvation is not merely the grace that God gives us in forgiving our sins by no act of ours, but by Jesus' act on the cross. But then the grace that he now gives us, and this is part of salvation. This is the part of the beauty of salvation. Not merely that he puts our sins on Jesus and they're forgiven because of his death on the cross, but that he gives us a new heart. And now, after our moment of rebirth, enables us, again not perfectly, but with the help of his word, but with the help of his spirit dwelling in us and the help of our brothers and sisters in the local church, he enables us 
to obey the law of God written on our hearts. That's why, friends, it's not enough to say I'm a Christian, but to have no obedience. Because the law, the Old Testament law, which was a shadow, which is now no longer necessary. This is why we don't sacrifice animals and have priests that go into the temple for us, because Jesus has become the fulfillment of them. But the fulfillment of the Mosaic law is now that the law, the Spirit dwells in us, and now we can fight sin. We can say no to it. Again, we won't do that perfectly. That's glorification, but we can do it to the glory of God. And so now what it means to be a Christian is not just to say you're one, but to strive and struggle and strain to actually be one in your life. And we can do that. We can follow the law written on our hearts because Jesus has put that law in our hearts. And Jesus is the new, he's the new David. He's the fulfillment. He's the new and better David. So we need a better king. Not one that makes bad decisions. But one who's perfect and whose reign is righteous. And David's a shadow pointing to Jesus. We need a king. Jesus. Two applications and I end. Two applications about this new and better covenant. Don't go back and trust in insufficient priests and sacrifices or look forward to false promised lands. I think that's the major thrust of this section of Hebrews. To these, new te- to these first century Christians living in Rome, ethnic Jews, and to us 2,000 years later, draw near and hold on to Jesus. Now, they were tempted to go back to the Old Covenant, to go back to their sacrifices, to go back to Sabbath-keeping and the festivals and the feasts and circumcision is necessary and all these things. I don't think many of us are tempted to do that today, but we are tempted to our own form of legalism, of adding something now to the covenant fulfilled in Christ, whatever it is, your spiritual heritage maybe, your level of income, your parenting, this is a big one. I mean, you know, thinking about maybe taking pride in the fact of how you're parenting your children compared to other people. And that can be a kind of legalism that grows up in the hearts of people. Beware of that. Don't go back to that. Don't find, don't find your relative righteousness in that. Find it in Christ. You can even, this is very insidious, in a church like this, it happens though, I see roots of this in my own heart that I have to constantly pluck these weeds. We can even kind of go back and rest in a kind of the insufficiency of our good understanding of theology and sort of find our, our sort of satisfaction in that. And sort of that's the thing that we hold up and say, yeah, I'm going to glory in that. And, and so the message for us today, oh, we're, we're not tempted to go back to temple worship, but we're tempted to run to these insufficient shadows that were ultimately meant to point to Jesus or, or sort of modern-day manifestation of these insufficient shadows. And the, the application to us is don't go back. In other words, in a sense, the Old Covenant is the, is, puts on display the failure of trusting in yourself. 
And there are many ways that even Christians, after we've been born again, can do that. And so don't do that. Don't do that, believer. Draw near and hold on to Jesus and trust him and him alone and grow in him and grow in humility and grow in awe and wonder and worship of God who has done this glorious thing in you. And then secondly, Christian, have confidence that God is committed to his covenant. So he's committed to you. He's committed to you. Why is this important? Because remember what part of this new covenant is? Is he's going to write his law. He's going to give us a new heart, which then enables us to actually live for him. And he's going to write his law on our hearts. And it's actually, the spirit of God is now alive in the believer. And it, he's now done something. He's so invested in you. And, and you know, let me back up and say that Sometimes a, a critique of modern-day preaching is that it's sort of people-focused. You know, it's all about people, all about what God does for us. And I think there's some validity in that. I've even sort of made that insinuation that modern-day preaching is sort of too much about the felt needs and not about the glory of God. But actually, I was reading Hebrews, and it's all about what the writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants to see brought about in the actual lives of these people. And in their sanctification, they're good. Why? for the display of the glory of God. And so in a way, viewing the work of the gospel as applying to me so that I can live more faithfully for God is the most God-glorifying thing I can do. Does that make sense? So in a sense, sort of focusing on the implications of the gospel for me and for us is my call, our call as a Christian. And what I want you to see here is that in the middle of our fight with sin, in the middle of our struggle with the flesh, in the middle of this, this world that we live in that, that just seems to be so chaotic, friends, we, we hold on to, we have confidence, we have this trust, and we build our faith as we hear the word of God preached and read and as we stand on it. And we remember and we remind ourselves that what God has began not only in a cosmic, universal, worldly sense, but in me. He will, he will, he will finish it. And so I take that confidence. How does this heady theological mean? Man, Brad, thanks for the academic lecture today. I appreciate it. No, 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 no. Don't write it off. Some of this might have went above your head, and maybe I didn't explain it well, but don't write it off. These are glorious truths. And they're meant to land. They're meant to land in the heart of individual believers. And when we see God's commitment, and then when we see God's slow, merciful patience. I mean, we're talking about millennium from Adam to Christ. And his tenderness and his mercy Sometimes we think of the old covenant as like God's wrath and the new covenant as God's grace. No, it's been grace from beginning to end. From beginning to end. And we see that and we see what God, and we see the patience and the tenderness of God. And we see this. If you can just see that, God's commitment to glorify himself through the unfolding plan of redemption. And then don't let it hang up here in a theological universal since grab that and pull it down into your life and, and say, this is for me. 
in my fight against sin, in my struggle against depression, in my fight. God is for me if I'm a Christian. So if God is for me, what can man do to me? If God is for me, what can the residue of flesh that I still fight with, it will not overtake me. If God is for me, the sadness I feel, the depression I feel, it may have a say, but joy comes in the morning because God is committed to his covenant, which means if you're a Christian, he is radically, pervasively, inexhaustibly committed to you. So take that. Take that and fight and live and come out swinging. Come out swinging. Or or curl up in a corner and lament and be sad, but no, 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 that God is for you. And he can never be otherwise because of his commitment if you're in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, please, please, please consider this. If God in his kindness by his spirit has made you aware of the fact that this is not where your trust is, a flood's coming, and you need the ark, which is Jesus. So please consider this and trust in Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, if there's anything that I've said that's been imprecise or unclear or wrong, let it fall to the ground. Whatever I've said that's been true and good, let it stick fast to our hearts. And may we have confidence that your word will do its work. In Jesus' name, amen.